So am I doing the intro, or are you? You are, now that you fucked it up, but, you know, go oh. for it. Now that I fucked it up? Oh, well, I mean, you know, you said it, so I had to figure it out. Are you ready? But yeah, we don't really have a choice now. We're live. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am your faithful co-host, Nick Bogart, and joining me tonight, as you could hear bitching and grumbling in the background, is our always grumpy host, Tim Korkleski. Way to fuck it up, Nick. I know. I like fucking it up, though. Um, and joining us tonight is Jim Pinto, who is actually now a reoccurring alumni on the show. Yay! He's got tenure. He, he After does. only two two appearances, I get the tenure. Well, I mean, you know, you're you're the second person to make two appearances. Nice. We, we don't we don't really extend that to a lot of people. I want to make the five timers club like Tom Hanks. <laughs> is is that five times crashing in an airplane? Uh, I know not of what you speak. <laughs> there was a um, there was a meme posted er earlier that I saw that said. If I see this guy on a plane, I'm getting off. And it showed Tom Hanks and Castaway, his newest oh. movie, uh, and a couple others where you know he ends up you know crashed in a plane or you know something along those lines. I get it now. Yes. So. How about the one where he just spends two years living in an airport bathroom? <laughs> Terminal. That was a great movie. I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit so Jim how you doing man I'm good I'm actually I had a really shitty weekend um, and then I don't know what happened I got off the plane and I just my spirits lifted when I got home and I made this really funny joke in the elevator with these ladies and they cracked up and I don't know I've been happy ever since so I had a really shitty weekend but everything's good now now you get some ladies laughing at you for, you know, jokes that you actually say. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My pants were on, too. Usually they're laughing when the pants are on. So. Oh, yeah. I, I can't help you there. I mean, especially when you don't have a camera. But, uh... <laughs> oh, shit. So, anyway, King of Storms. King of Your Storms. Your new Kickstarter. Yes. Which is doing quite well. 10,613 out of your $1,000 goal. Eight days yes. to go. Yes. Not doing, too, not doing too shabby. So this is using your Praxis system, from what I understand. Yes. Cool. It, it's brand new. A lot of people haven't seen it yet. I've been playing it for the past three months up here, and I just showed it off at the convention three times. So um, it, it works. I'm just fine-tuning some terminology on the character sheets now. Cool. So tell us a little bit about Praxis, because I know that with King of Storms, you have quite a few RPGs that are kind of coming out along with this that are using the system. So kind of fill us in on like the core of what it is and how it works. So, um, I w I've been really bad at describing it in the past, but I came up with this perfect terminology over the weekend, and essentially it's putting you in charge of your own spotlight. Um, it's a GMless game like Protocol is, but instead of Protocol where you draw cards and you suffer the wrath of the deck, in this you have milestones that you're aiming to complete, and it's your job to make them happen. 
So you need to create scenes and frame scenes for yourself that get you where you need to go. And those scenes, because you can't just do scenes with yourself, you have to include other characters, stories are going to overlap on top of one another. So in an interlude or ensemble, characters are going to uh, have their spotlights overlapping and, and contacting one another. Nice, nice. So how, how would you compare this one to, say... Um, Carcass. That was actually the last one you were on talking about, where with that one, it was also a GM-less system, and the characters themselves were guiding the community, per se. Right. Um, well, so in Carcass, you're either writing a story about yourself or the community, or both. And you can't do both effectively, but you, you can try. Um, and Carcass, you win if you can tell a really good... Not win, that's a horrible word. In Carcass, you can you can succeed at building a better community or you can succeed at becoming the leader by focusing on yourself or focusing on the community. In uh, Praxis, you're really focusing a lot on yourself inside these stories. Um, three of them are effectively competitive games. Okay. Cool. So Praxis as a whole is a RPG for narcissists. <laughs> I would not put it that way at all. And I think narcissists will ruin the fun for other people. But fiasco is for narcissists. I don't think that uh, I don't I don't think that Praxis is for narcissists. I think Praxis is for people that are used to going to games and having the GM ignore them. And um, this is their opportunity to 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 make their characters matter. Okay, cool. So tell us a little bit about like how all of that works. I know you kind of said that it's like it's all about you creating your own spotlight and involving the other characters. How does that go about happening? Happening from like a game mechanics standpoint. Um, so if you're sitting down, you're playing a traditional role-playing game. There's let's say four of you at the table and a GM. The GM is going to set up scenes and he's going, okay, now you're at the tavern and this is going on and blah blah. blah. And he, he or she is just going to let the players go wild as long as is necessary before the scene is over. We don't look at it as scenes because traditional role-playing games have never called them scenes, but they are effectively scenes. When you go into a dungeon room, it's a scene. Until you leave that room, that's one big scene. And with um, modern indie, GMless, whatever you want to call them, hipster games, boutique games... The, the focus is on having clearly delineated beginnings and ends of scenes so you know what the focus of play is. And in Praxis, there is no game master, so there can be. There's rules for it. But usually you're playing without a game master. And so you'll set a scene for yourself or for others, and you'll set parameters. And since there are seven different kinds of scenes in the game that give you specific rules on how to build scenes for your characters, you know exactly what you can and cannot do. And every character sheet has a different list of scenes that you get. So I'm looking at the engineer right now while we're talking from Odin's Eye, and the engineer has three ensemble scenes that, that he or she can do, while the medic has no ensemble scenes. And an ensemble would be a scene with all the characters in it. Okay, cool. So in a way, your character also determines how the story is built, and how many people can kind of be included in it. Right, exactly. And be, because there's seven characters in each game, 
if you back the Kickstarter, you get an extra character. There's normally six. There's seven characters in it if you back the Kickstarter. Your game is going to have, in a four-player game, so many different vectors that are going to direct how gameplay goes. There's so much replay value. Because in one game, you could have the engineer, biologist, captain, and medic, and the next game, you're playing with the captain, medic, uh, pilot, and ranger. And so you're getting a completely different story than you did last time with just a switching out of two characters. Okay, cool. So the characters themselves are far more important than just saying, I'm the fighter. I, I, I kick things in the face. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the fighter has his own objectives, his own relationships, his own world-building questions, his own quirks, his own scenes to choose from, five different milestones that nobody else has. They're completely unique to him. And then trepidation, which I haven't even covered yet in, in the discussion. Everybody has five different points of trepidation as well, and special abilities. So all of that, that creates so much variegation that replay is immense. Okay, cool. So walk us through a little bit about like how that works on a, on a character creation level. You're not really creating a character like you would for like D&D or Cypher System or something like that where you're rolling a bunch of dice or picking stats and making sure that they all kind of match up with like min-maxing your character. You're pretty much, you have a character and it's set or do you get some tweaks within it? You get some tweaks within it. You got a, there's a, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of freedom to, to make these characters in what you want, but because it's uh, zero prep, it, or it should be zero prep, you're sitting down, you're grabbing a character sheet, and you're you're grabbing a deck of cards, and you're just finding out three pieces of information real quick about your character randomly. You could certainly choose it from the list if you wanted to. We're all adults, and if you wanted to sit down and pick one of the four objectives for your character, you're welcome to do it. Um, and you get to world building where you get to devise whatever answers you want. You've got three quirks to choose from. And then you get to abilities, and abilities are where you really... Your character and you, the player get to shine because the abilities give the character some flavor because all of them have a title that has some flavor. But the abilities are things that the character gets, the player gets to do, not the character. Um, okay. And every time I've played, I've played now the Odin's Eye, for instance. I've played three times as the analyst, and each time the analyst has been a little bit different. So you're not locked into you have to play Spock to play the analyst. Okay. Cool. So it's it's not like yours and my character, even though if we're choosing the same character class or you know character template, that doesn't mean that we are always playing like the same character. It's always like, okay, your version's gonna be different than mine. Nick's right. gonna fuck it up, um, and then you know it just kind of it all delineates from there. Right, right, and and that's what you actually want out of this kind of game, right? Because most of the story comes out of your interaction with the other characters. So being flexible with what's there is going to... We just played on Monday afternoon with my buddy Jim Sandoval, and he, I was playing the analyst, and he was playing the biologist. And immediately I had just determined that his character was more emotional than mine. And being an alien, I just couldn't fathom his... his uh, his overreactions to things at times. And Jim just went with it. He didn't let his character sheet limit him to what he could do. And he started playing this character that was having emotional outbursts about being stuck on this planet and we couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, and it, it created a better, se uh, better session for us, really. I had a great time with him. Nice, nice. So 
walk us through a little bit about like the characters themselves. So you're saying so th there's no stats per se. No, there there aren't. Um, you still roll dice in the game, but how many dice you roll is up to how many drama points you want to spend. How invested you are in that that moment in that event. If you don't want to invest any drama points, you're only going to roll two dice. If you want to invest a lot, you can roll up to five. The target okay. numbers are always the same regardless of what you're trying to do. So the what you're rolling for are pivotal story moments. They're not they're not they're not do I open this door or not. That's a really stupid I can't tell you how boring it is, and I gave a seminar on this just a couple days ago, how boring it is to sit there and roll twelve perception checks in a roll row. They're inconsequential to the story. Why am I rolling this? Yeah. And so Praxis doesn't do that. You don't roll to see if you notice something. You roll to see if the thing you're doing impacts the story. Okay, cool. So it, it's a lot more than just like I'm going to search in this corner to see if there's a secret door or if there's a potato jammed into this dead corpse I can eat. Right, right. Yeah, no, you're, you're rolling to see if your character overcomes fear as a pivotal story moment. Okay. Cool. So you use that in a way to you use the dice rolls in a way to kind of set the scene and the direction of how the characters involved are going to react to whatever's going on. You roll the dice when you're ready. You only get to roll once per scene. Each player gets to roll okay, once per okay. scene. So you roll the dice when you're ready for this thing to matter. And when you r succeed, you get a milestone. When you fail, you get a trepidation. And trepidation builds up, and it's the, the more trepidation you get, the closer you get to death. Does that okay. make sense? Yes, very much so. But everybody's got a list of five different trepidations. Everybody has death or something like death on their sheet, um, but the other four are specific to that character. So the captain has all these PTSD moments where he's remembering letting his family down, while the medic is usually dealing with acts of cowardice or hallucinations. Um and uh, so on. Each of the characters is completely different. Cool. So in a, in a way, the, the trepidations, I mean, it, where we could call it, you know, per se, character death, it could also lead to just, like, character retirement to where they're now unfit for duty. Right, right. The analyst actually, for instance, doesn't die. He gets catatonia, right? He some, Enough bad things happen to the analyst that his brain just can't process what's right. going on, and he falls into a, he or she falls into a state of catatonia. So they become a space vegetable. Yes, space vegetable. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Awesome. So Praxis itself, I mean, I, I don't want to say that it's very open, but it, it, there, there's enough there for characters that are used to RPGs to get hooked on to be able to run with that scene. So this is not, you know, and to the listeners out there too, this is not your typical D&D &D game where you can't just sit back and be that guy that just kicks in doors and kills orcs. That Right, exactly. Yeah, in fact, that there's no game in this system that does that. These are all... I used to use the word dark, and I don't use that anymore. I, I use deep and rich. These are deep and rich games, right? If you make the tone dark, that's up to you. But the stories that you're getting are rich stories. So even in two and a half hours in, you've seen enough happen to your character to say this could be a novel, this could be a movie, this could be a, this is a story that I would want to get invested in long term. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So what made you decide? Just quick sidetrack. What made you decide not to use dark anymore? 
and decide instead go with you know deep and rich. Um, well, I think one um, dark suggests that dark is kind of getting overused, right? Everybody makes a dark game because they think that makes a game adult, and I I come to realize that just because I like a gritty game doesn't mean everybody likes a gritty game. And so if we could come to a point that we're using the same system to tell a story, but my character's going through something gritty and your character's going through something heroic and adventurous, there's no reason we can't be at the same table playing. But if I force us both to have a, gr a gritty or dark experience, then uh, I'm not taking your, your interests into account. And so I don't really want to make a game that's only dark. I want to make a game that is rich. Black Monk is the fifth game in the series, and it's a really weird Sandman-like fantasy game. And it's not meant to be dark. It's meant to feel weird and awkward. Um, and so if you want to take it to dark places, you can. And if you don't, you can still play a character who's out of sorts with the world. Cool. So... If you were to compare Praxis to another to another RPG out there, you wouldn't really be able to do it because it, it's its own thing. It, it's definitely th th there is no meta game. I guess is the best way to put it. There's nothing out there right now that I can think of when I think of this. It sort of feels somewhere between Apocalypse World and Protocol. Okay. Um, and but that wasn't intentional, and it certainly doesn't have the dice mechanics or the moves that Apocalypse World has. So. I'm not copying Vincent's work at all. It's just it's hard to not touch on other games that are out there when you're designing something. But yeah. I came up with this about, I want to say, three years ago when I came up with Protocol, but I didn't do anything with it. Um, I focused too much on Protocol for too long. I've made 65 Protocols. And so, I don't know, three months ago I just was sitting around. I think it was in the bathroom where all my ideas come to me. I just said it's time for me to start making characters for this thing. I'm I want to test it. That's where all the best ideas when it comes time to geekery come from is right <laughs> in the shitter. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I designed. Um, there's a that board game that just nice. kickstarted Gondola. I came up with in the shower. It took five minutes to design. Nice. Nice. So you're just I, like I, sticking your you're just sticking your pole in the water and just, just said, hey, we're gonna make a game out of this. Yep, exactly. exactly. Fantastic, fantastic. See, that's proof positive, listeners. You can create a game doing anything at all. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, speaking about influence from other places, or you know, just kind of stumbling over something, you know, only because the realization came. I've been, I've been toying with a whole, um, you know, writing little short stories that won't ever see the light of day for uh, a world, post-apocalyptic world I'd come up with that, um, you know, has some of your fantasy races in it, but they were, you know, all derived from from humans, you know, just genetic experimentation after the world went crazy, basically. Um, and I, I just happened to sit down the other day to watch the, uh, the Shannara show uh, on Netflix because it was there and I was bored. Uh, great way to spend your Labor Day. <laughs> and so I, I was sitting down. Going, but go I was on. sitting down watching it, and I read the books years and years ago. And I was sitting there going, "Well, shit." <laughs> uh, apparently, he's already written this. <laughs> I've, I've been I've been playing with this for ten plus years, and you know, I'm like, I've never seen anything like it. You know, it's kind of neat. It's my little play. I'm like, 
well, shit, did I read that and just not remember it when I came up with my idea? <laughs> More well, than likely. Pa Picasso said, good artists borrow and great artists steal. Um, and so there's nothing you can do about other people's ideas getting into your subconscious and affecting your designs or your stories or your art in any way. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you can close yourself off, I guess, and hope you make great stuff in a vacuum. Right. right. Terrible artists compare their stuff to an MTV show, but I digress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, to be honest with you, Nick, I've done that myself numerous times where it's like, this is a great idea, and then I find something, I'm like, fuck, I completely remember reading about all this. Yeah, well, and that that was really what sparked it. wasn't, you know, I'm copying the show as much as, you know, I I read these books years ago. I actually bought some of the some of the books a little while back to read again, and I just haven't yet. And and you know, so it was just that kind of, oh, wait a minute, you know, Oops. it was, huh? <laughs> because yeah, I've, I mean, I've done other projects. I've worked on on programming things or, you know, oh, hey, I have a great idea for this kind of app, and I go to start doing it, and I look and I go, well, son of a bitch, there's already a really popular app that does exactly what I was going to do. That'll teach you. Yeah, exactly. That's why I quit trying to develop shit. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, that's because you're bad at it. But anyway, uh, so any... <laughs> So, Jim, tell us a little bit about the games that you have on your Kickstarter that are using Praxis. I, I, we, we've talked about Praxis. I don't want to give away too much because, again, listeners out there, you know how I feel. Go look at the Kickstarter. Jim's an indie guy. Support his stuff. So taking, so taking that into consideration, tell us a little, about, a little bit about the different games that are using Praxis and kind of the, how they feel, how they play, if they're different from each other. Um, they're definitely uh, extremely different from one another. They they share a storytelling methodology, but that's about it. I mean, you're not you're not even getting the same subtext or anything with these games. So the first one of the series is King of Storms, where you play uh, the descendants of gods who there are no gods left; they all died in a great battle, and so you're playing the descendants of gods and titans and gorgons, and you're trying to, one of you wants to become the, the king of storms. The You want to sit on the throne of heaven. And so that game becomes slightly backbiting in how it's played out until you find out at the end who the king of storms is. And it's possible no one is. Um, you can go, get to the ending and your finale sucks because you did all <laughs> the wrong things. That's awesome. Um, Who's the king of storms? Nobody at this table. We all nobody at this table. Yeah. <laughs> Your mom. You guys suck. <laughs> uh, and then the second one in the series is called The Lambs. It's only available through the Kickstarter. It'll never be available anywhere ever again. It's too controversial, I, and I don't want I don't want it out there and having somebody pick it up without having any context of what the plan was through the Kickstarter to do the game. But essentially, your Fundamental, religious fundamentalists, and you believe that God's talking to you, telling you what to do, and you're examining... The reason I made the game was to examine something through another lens. I wanted to see how people who are different from me think and act. What would it mean if my character was against abortion or didn't think gays should marry? Um, and that's essentially what that game is. And it, it's not just Christian fundamentalism, it's any kind of fundamentalism. So I'm not targeting anybody's ideology. I wanted to examine that ideology. Um, 
and I don't think that games do that really, where they look at foreign uh, points of uh, perspective, if you no, will. No, they just give you alignments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and this is certainly the lambs would not fit anywhere on the alignment chart. I think it's um, it's its own thing. Right. So it's the it's the one the conversation. Mike Leader and I were talking one day, and he online, and I said, "What about a game where people believe that they're the reincarnation of the horsemen?" And then I realized, "Oh, Caius Ward's already done that. Why don't I take a step back? What if they're just people who think God talks to them?" And Mike said, "You should just start writing it. See what happens." And I did. Um, yeah. And I it's mean, uncomfortable, by the way. It is an uncomfortable game. I kind of figured it would be because, I mean, you know, there's certain things that, you know, even though when we, we play RPGs, like, we are stepping out of ourselves and we're supposed to be playing, you know, a, a character. Like, you know, if the character's a dick but you're not, like, Nick and I actually were just talking about this this last weekend at DragonCon. You know, we were sitting in on a, uh, a panel about RPGs and storytelling and things like that, and, you know, like, you have to kind of come out and tell everybody around the table, it's like, look, no, my character's a dick. I'm just acting it out. That doesn't mean that me personally, this is how I feel. Right. You know, but at the same time, like when you're dealing with like that far off fantasy or sci-fi or like other world setting, like you're far enough removed from that kind of stuff to where you don't, it doesn't really like hammer anything home. Like even if there's like something that's like, you know, space Islam, I'm just throwing that out there. Not, you know, just because that's like a hot button right now, you know, it's just everybody goes, oh well, this is this is a sci-fi version of it, so you know, yeah, sure, whatever. And they, they even though it's like a heady, a heady piece, it's still like written off as sci-fi. Where with this, I mean, you're talking like modern day religions that could screw with people a little bit, especially if they're you know special snowflakes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you can imagine that I'm not. I'm not a special snowflake, and I really don't. I don't really know how to cater to those kind of needs, so I don't make games that do that. Um, I find myself in the indie movement without having anything in common with the indie movement because I don't make those kind of games. Um, and I, I guess I'm not afraid to make people feel itchy a little bit. I'm not trying to purposely push buttons. I think if I wanted to do that, I would just make Cocksucker the role-playing game and... <laughs> get people all upset, oh my god, he used a dirty word in the title of his game. That's not my intention. I'm not trying to shock. Um, there's enough designers out there trying to shock or annoy people. I'm honestly trying to explore a valuable space. I think there's something to be said for looking at looking at life through another lens once in a while. Yeah. You know, kind of going back to the, the cocksuckers, the RPG, it brings a whole new meaning to the whole term you're using for Praxis, deep and rich. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you finally figured it out. It is it is about sodomy on every level, every game. <laughs> every game, you're just taking it. Praxis, it's the Marvin Gaye of the RPG world. But, uh, so... Wow. Um... <laughs> wow. <laughs> shots and shots and shots. All right, so anyway, moving on to the next one. We've got Odin's Eye. Odin's Eye is um, it's a sci-fi game. It's the one we've been talking the most about. Um, it's the easiest for people to get their head around because it, it's sci-fi and it's search and rescue and everybody understands the job titles without even without reading any flavor text as to what an analyst or an engineer or a captain does. You know what those are. So it's the it's the quickest and easiest to jump into and it's the spiritual successor to Joan of Arc which was one of my protocols. Um, 
So I don't know that I need to say anything else about it. Nice. Okay. Well, that I mean that pretty much explains everything you need to. <laughs> rescue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a beacon that goes off on a planet, and then everything goes wrong. There, there you go. Your typical right, so sci-fi scenario. Star Trek oh. Event Horizon. All right, we got it. Yeah. So then you have this other one I'm looking at, Of the Flesh. Yeah, that one's, um, again, another itchy game. Um, you're playing undead, and you're trying to become human again, but you're not really undead. I keep using the word undead. You're just... You're, you're suffering from some malignancy that has made you less than human. So you don't have any problem eating human flesh now, and you don't have any problem stalking the night and you know, eating a dog or eating a, a, a rat or something, but you want to become human again. So um, I don't know what else to say, but there's seven different character types in it, and they all have different, very different, very weird views on how to become whole again. Okay, cool. So this one, I don't want to compare it to Vampire the Masquerade, but you know, people <laughs> are going to make that comparison just based off of kind of yeah. what you said, but it, it, it's not more about like, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm a bruja and I, I'm really strong and I don't like being undead, so I'm going to wear black and black makeup. And, <laughs> no, it's nothing like that. One of them actually believes that this is God's punishment and so she has to atone for this in some spiritual way. Um, one of the characters has just gone crazy from the disease, one person can only eat things that have been dead a very, very, very long time. Um, one of them has been dead, or undead the longest. I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see. One of them has been undead the longest and believes that his or her philosophy on this is the obviously right one, um, and so on. And like I said, there's seven different ones. So it, it kind of makes me think of I Am Legend, not the movie with Will Smith in it, but the, uh, the actual book. Right, and again, I can't. Uh, I think it's a great book. I think the book's fantastic. I think the movie is bad. Um, <laughs> the, the alternative ending was great, but the ending that we got in the movies was bad. I, I can't help it when those things influence and impact how I write. You know, I've I've written over two hundred games, and eventually stuff like that seeps into my. Ah. I, I actually, you know, when I read it, you know, I thought, you know, that it's kind of an interesting way to go because, you know, the same thing with what they attempted with, you know, or, you know, they did in the book, you know, is talking about, you know, coming to terms with, you know, what you are, you know, and how the world has shifted. You know, it, it kind of made you, you know, or could make you, you know, a little uncomfortable. I actually really like the movie Contagion, and that is what where I started with the game, and I thought, well, what if these people weren't dying from the plague? What if they were just getting so sick that everybody thought they were monsters? Yeah, I could definitely see that. Hmm. Yeah, kind of like, uh, well, no, quarantine's a bad example of that because they basically turned into zombies. But, uh, well, yeah, actually, I guess quarantine in a way kind of works because it's like we didn't really know if they became, like, undead or if they were just, like, so far gone and so far, far like, I don't want to say super rabies, but, like, so, like <laughs> whatever got into them got into them so bad that they just, like, no shits were given. You know, like, get tossed off a balcony, break both legs, they still try to get up and walk kind of thing. Um, you know, so I, I can kind of see 
where that would be coming from on that level too, where it's not just like, oh, we're undead, but you know, we're sick as shit and we can affect infect other people and like this is terrible. So cool. Yeah. So kind of sidetrack sidetrack there a little bit. That's all right. No, no, so, no. I. I... <laughs> <laughs> I I wish I had the energy to write every game idea I have. To be honest, I mean every time I come up with one of these, um, I just start writing. I have 15 protocols just sitting around waiting to be published because I came up with an idea. I don't know if they're any good, but I started writing them, and so there's charts for them. They're playable, but I don't know if they're publishable. Well, yeah, that's always the <laughs> the double-edged sword of coming up with an idea. You might like it. Everybody else might think it's absolute garbage. So <laughs> where you might keep it for yourself, nobody else might buy it. Right, right. So cool. So tell us a little bit about Black Monk. Uh, Black Monk's probably my favorite in the series. It is weird fantasy. It's it's hard to pin down. Uh, the best answer I can give is you're undead and you're... You're not undead. You're immortal and you're waiting for death. Um, and... The Black Monk visits once a year. You're living in this place that's isolated from everything. And the Black Monk comes visits once every year. And one day he comes and visits, and he, when he leaves, the sun doesn't go down. And the sun stays in the sky forever. I mean, there's never nighttime again. And you're sort of going through the paces of wondering, when is the Black Monk coming? It, when he comes, is it going to be the last time we ever see them? Is this our punishment? Are we now in purgatory? Is this hell? Etc. 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 And the character classes, because it's a fantasy game, you would think there'd be cleric, fighter, thief, wizard. There's nothing like that. The characters are really weird things like mule skinner, bell tower watcher, lamp lighter, etc. So you have these people doing this strange work. There's the blood letter, um, and so on, doing this strange work within the community that if you thought about it too long, the community wouldn't make any sense. There's no way this community could survive without, say, someone baking bread. Right. Okay, cool. So in a way, it's it's definitely like, again, not dark fantasy, but more of like a weird twisted fantasy where, you know, even the dude that's like sweeping cow shit off the side of the road has like an, a, a very important impact in the story. Right, right. Yeah, and, and all these people, um, uh, one of the characters' classes, one of my favorites is called the Fireman, and it's just his job to make sure that the, the, there's no ash on the ground when the Black Monk comes, um, which is just a weird, in my opinion, just a weird job to have. Um, and as a result, he's taken a lot of authority onto himself. He's sort of a bully um, because he believes his objective is the most important. Even though it's not, he's convinced himself it is, and so... He pushes a lot of the other characters around. And yeah, I think a dung sweeper character um, would fit in perfectly with these people. Nice. Well, it makes sense. I mean, at the same time, you got a guy that doesn't want ash on the ground. The other one doesn't want the black monk to step in a bunch of shit. So, hey, right. why not? Yeah. Cool, cool. So, I mean, you're kind of, you're kind of, I don't want to say all over the place, because obviously you have direction to the stuff that you do. You're not just like, well, I'm going to throw out a fantasy game. I'm going to throw out a sci-fi game. <laughs> like, you very much have, like, a direction in, the, in, in where you're going with your games. So I don't want to say that you're all over the place, but you've got a lot of stuff that you're throwing at Praxis. Yes. Okay, cool. Now, I was just kind of reading here a little bit uh, that you do have more stuff in development for it, but you don't want to force it, you don't want to rush it. 
Right. So right. are you thinking that maybe somewhere down the line you might do like a, a Praxis Kickstarter Part 2 to get the rest of that going, depending upon how well this one does? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, and I think it just depends on how well it's received, right? The, even if this did, let's say, 25000 which it won't, but let's pretend it does. If nobody likes it, everybody walks away and says, oh, I wasted my money on that, I won't follow up with a sequel unless it was to clean up the rules that everybody hated. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, I have ideas. I've got four other ones that I've been outlining. Um, I wanted to do one about the 2016 election, to be honest. This idea that that martial law gets enacted before the election, and so the ballot boxes aren't opened um, in uh, in November, and so it's the day after the election was supposed to happen, and Americans don't know what to do. So it's sort of a trigger effect situation where everybody's out for themselves because they think it's the end times. Nice. Well, I mean, we're kind of living in that world now, not for yeah. very much. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why it becomes, do I really want to do this as a game? Because that might make a lot of people itchy. Itchy in, a way that, itchy in a way that's not good. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could definitely see that, you know, because of the fact that nowadays, especially with the way that Facebook's going, and, you know, again, I, it, I don't want to get political on the podcast. I never really do, but, like, Nick and I have talked about it offline a few times. I know I've made some barbs here and there, but it just seems like with modern-day social media and stuff like that, everybody's got this freaking opinion. And the moment anything pops up online, they automatically turn into internet lawyers or internet politicians or, you right. know, internet evangelists. And it just, it, it gets tiresome. And no, as cool I, as a game yeah. like that would be, I'm sure that somebody somewhere would get so pissed off and start writing petitions and yada, 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 and just like basically make life miserable for the sheer sake of the fact that you're putting out a game that you really wanted to try. I, yeah, and, a, and an even bigger fear would be that everybody would turn it into an argument at the table, right? Beyond getting making it, and if I get it into people's hands and they actually sit down and play it, for me, I would be able to sit down and play and explore this idea and pretend that I'm a libertarian, which I'm not, but I could pretend to be a libertarian <laughs> in this environment and, um, and e examine it and see where it goes without having to have an argument at the table with people. And, right. Um, uh, I don't know how many people can do that. And I'm not saying that makes them bad people and that makes me a good person. I'm just saying that that's, that's important to me that I can look through things through a lot of lenses. And it's probably why I can do what you just said, which is have lots of games and lots of directions doing lots of things, and it feels like I'm doing too much. But it's because I've always, I've always wanted to explore. I have my own personal philosophies that I've built. I'm in my 40s, right? I'm not... A, I'm not a 20-something anymore who thinks he knows everything. I'm a 40-something who knows he does never going to know anything, but this is as much as I can accumulate in my lifetime to understand about the world. And I want to make games that allow me to see through numerous lenses. Yeah, I could definitely see that. You know, So in a way, it's kind of your own personal, I don't want to say development project, but... You know, it it allows you to explore other thoughts as well. You know, and honestly, like any type of any good work of fiction or nonfiction or any good literary work should force somebody to do that in some way and like step back and critically look at themselves. Yeah, yeah, I would hope so. I would hope so. Um, I think we live in a snow snowflake environment now, and we make a lot of games for snowflakes. Um, we do, and. Um, I 
I think it's okay to make games that satisfy people's egos. I think it's not okay to change everything you're doing every single time somebody tweets and says, well, what about this part of the of the culture? Why isn't this represented in your game? Because my game's only 50 pages long. That's why. I could <laughs> not also get Inuit Indians into my game. I am sorry. Um, right. Paco and I did a long podcast about this the other day, about... Um, trying to represent everybody in a game, this, this idea that representation and, and equity needs to appear across the board in every game. Uh, writers can only do so much. They can only conquer so much of the world um, and address so many things in a game. You can't make a perfect representation of everybody in everything that you do. It just isn't possible. You want to hit the themes that you want to hit. Right, and I think that's the important part. I mean, it's like that. Like whenever somebody just writes a book, it's the same thing. Like, there's more to it than just, you know, oh well, I'm gonna try to make this book for everybody because that's never gonna happen. You're gonna be like, well, what's my book about? It's about some space battles. What's what's gonna be involved in it? It's gonna be like between, you know, this faction, this faction, this faction, and this faction. You know, I'm gonna go a little bit deeper than just like bad guys versus good guys kind of thing. You know, so it, it's like that in anything. And whenever you're writing an RPG, it, I can kind of see where that's the same thing. Like, you want to convey this element or this theme, and this is the, the crux of what the story is. You're not going to sit here and say, um, you know, I, I have developed an entire world by myself where each you know, NPC, even without the GM's help, has his own personality. Because at that point, you're going to come across as a psychopath that's written way too much. Yeah, I um I was working on a book for a while called Quirks, and I never finished it. But it was uh, advising writers how to write characters, and it would not writers, players, how to make characters. And writers could use it if they wanted to. But at the end of the day, if you're making a book or you're making a character or whatever, you only need three key pieces of information about anybody because nobody can remember more than that about anybody. Um, the main protagonist of a story might have a couple more. But that's about it. There's three pieces. And whatever you want to make those signifiers, right? This guy has an eye patch. This guy um, hates the smell of cigarettes. And, you know, this guy has a horse. Your choices to make those the, the, the focus of that character are yours alone. But another character doesn't have to necessarily have any physical descriptions as there are three affectations that make them unique. And trying to pin down more than that, you're just you're turning into a control freak. Yeah, definitely. which is what you essentially just said, and then I tangented. Hey, that's totally fine. It, you know, you are the guest on this podcast. You tangent oh. as much as you want. Oh, sweet! I'm tangenting right now. You can't see it. I'm tangenting <laughs> right, just, right now. Whenever you're done, just wash your hands. That's how you get. <laughs> but um, laugh the cameras off. <laughs> My hands are above the table. Now, <laughs> Boy, I can't wait for this to hit YouTube a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, just think. Next week, this is all on YouTube Live, so uh, you know that's going to be a thing. But uh... <laughs> great, and people wonder why I shouldn't be allowed in public. Oh well, yeah. people <laughs> yeah, say that about still us. Too. Keep putting yourself out there. I wouldn't worry about it. Oh shit! So yeah, King of Storms. Got what is it? Eight days to go. You've already funded. You've way overfunded. Obviously, we want to see you get even more people. Um, but w what are your plans? Like, let's say this thing just tomorrow goes like 
batshit crazy, you know, and like you, you, you just jump overnight, 15 grand. Like what is your plan going forward? Uh, well, my plan is to get back on carcass regardless of how well this does. Cause I really want to finish it for you guys. Cause, um, this has been, um, a fun distraction, but a distraction nonetheless. It was unexpected that all of a sudden I would start working on Praxis. I didn't plan for it at the beginning of the year. Um, so, yeah, I'm getting back to Carcass regardless of what this does. Cool, cool. And how far along is Carcass at the moment? Probably about halfway done. About um, halfway done. Okay. More than halfway with the text. It's just a matter of um, paginating and, and editing and cleaning things up and whatnot and getting the art in its place. Um, so there's 200 pages of text written, but it's not it's not in any kind of condition that I'm happy with. So I would say half of it is is good. Okay. So half of it's good. The other half is just kind of like some some placeholder notes at the moment. Um, well, more than just placeholder notes, but not not formatted in any way that I want anybody to see. I can understand that. Nice. Okay. Cool. So when are you thinking that that uh, we we could see Carcass actually come out officially? I'm I'm my. It's going to be done by the end of the year, regardless. I'm if I have to lock myself in a room to get it done. It is going to get done by the end of the year. But we're in September now. My hope is November. Cool. So not, you know, you're not going you're not going too too crazy with it. You still got other projects you're trying to get done and everything else. So you yeah. you are definitely pushing to have it done, but th there's a plan. It's not just I'm going to slam this crap into a book, put it out there and hopefully nobody notices all my mistakes. No, yeah, yeah, no, no, I want it to be playable. I, I've actually had um, somebody in France already tap me and ask to do the French translation, so that will be really nice if Carcass actually appears in France. Um, I've had books tr translated before, and that's always fun, but I've never had my own personal... I've never had post-world games translated, so that'll be nice. Yeah, definitely, as long as you don't use Google Translate, because by the time you're done, you'll end up with a French version of Mein Kampf, and then this is all going to go downhill. <laughs> Well, they claim to be French, so unless they're lying to me, they're, uh, <laughs> I, I hope their intentions are to use Google Translate. Better than Bing Translate, I guess. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> now we're just going off on a terrible, terrible tangent and things that can go horribly, horribly wrong with anything that you try to translate, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Especially if you use Bing. <laughs> oh, God. Awesome. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about something that we know that you absolutely love talking about, Jim. Modern-day RPGs, especially Shadowrun. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, I, I think... Do you really want to talk about this, or are you just busting my balls? Um, it's a little bit of both. I mean... Okay. Again, you're an indie game designer, so for me, for, for the listeners especially, it comes across as, like, you know, where are these indie guys going? They're not just going, I want to make D&D too. Oh right, I I just I, I talked about this this weekend a lot when when I was at the I was at a guest of honor at a convention this past weekend. Which one? And, uh, uh, Gateway Strategicon in L.A. Okay. Um, I live in Seattle now, but I lived down there for years and years, and I was at the convention for twenty years. And now that I've moved away, they finally decided to have me as a guest. Um, so. Yeah, I, I talked about the difference between traditional play and indie play. Traditional games are about, um, well, they're about tradition, right? The industry is about tradition. They want games that do the same thing. I roll a die and the GM tells me what it means. Dungeons & Dragons, no matter what edition you're playing, you roll a d20 and the GM tells you what it means. And 
In third edition, you may have a little more power or control over what that 20 does, but the GM still interprets it. So the addition of D&D is just the, the scale of math you want to do to affect that D20. And the only thing that sets Shadowrun apart from that kind of thinking is that it has a lot of gun porn in it, and you roll a lot of D6s instead of a D20. But it's essentially the same game. And you, you chop away the veneer of Shadowrun, and your guy's getting a job to go kill people. That's it. That's what Shadowrun is. Yeah, you're and, just a more shiny version of a murder hobo. Right, you're just a shinier version of a murder hobo. But um, tra- <laughs> indie games are about design, and they're about uh, experimentation and innovation. And sometimes that innovation is bad, right? There's a lot of bad indie games out there. I'm not going to lie and say they're all great. I have a bunch of bad free ones on Drive Through RPG. You're welcome to go and download them for free. They're not good. That's I've, why they're free. <laughs> that's why they're free. But they were experiments. I wrote one in six hours just to see if I could do it. And so um, tr- these chances that people take are actually in some way starting to affect the the hobby a little bit. Um, Savage Worlds has interludes in them now, which I think is fantastic. Um, I just wish GMs knew how to use them. I've sat in a lot of Savage World games at conventions, and GMs will run an interlude and just ignore the entire table. And, and it's just, why? Why am I here? I, I hate those kind of games where I'm sitting waiting for the GM to talk to me. Um, so Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I mean, I think we've if anybody has played any RPG, either in, indie or traditional or anything else, We've all had those times where we've been sitting around the table or sitting around the living room or basement or wherever we were playing where it's just like, especially before the invention of the modern-day cell phone, where we're just sitting there going, why am I wasting my Saturday? We used to right. take turns playing EverQuest. Yeah, when, when you were taking time to play a computer game RPG while playing an actual RPG, your GM has fucked up somewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, and the same can be said for a lot of board games, too. If I can leave the table for ten minutes while you guys play, and then I come back and I don't need to worry about what you did, there's something wrong with that board game. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that outside of, like, somebody just, like, taking their sweet time trying to go through their turn. You know, a lot of Euro games, I see that quite a bit, especially with a little bit more of, like, the slightly more complex Euro games where it's, like, people are just, like, trying to analyze the next eight different ways that they're going to screw you. So, you know, there's times like that where it's like, okay, I'm going to get up and go to the bathroom. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, I've seen that quite a bit in RPGs. And, like, even even GMing some myself at different gaming conventions, like, uh, you know, in participating, I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in on an eight-hour game, and I maybe myself personally have played four hours of that. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it can be a bit of a, a headache. So, We'll do a protocol session, and it'll run about two hours, especially with my friends that know how to play the game. We'll just bang it out, boom, boom, boom. Um, but if there's a scene going on with just two players and the other three are sitting around with nothing to do, there's still something, a reason to pay attention to that scene because that scene is creating canon and adding to the story, and it's vital to what's going on. Um, and they don't go so long that you're bored either. That's one of the things we've learned to do is share the spotlight, share the time. And right. 
I think that's hard to do in the Snowflake era, right? I mean, everybody wants to everybody wants to be the hero and in the spotlight right now, and they're not worried about giving somebody else time to do that same thing. Yeah, definitely. You know, in the moment somebody else steps in, then they feel like they're just stealing their thunder kind of stuff. Right. And that, right. that to me, I, I, to me, that does it, that takes away from what the game is going to be. If you wanted to do that, sit down and play Skyrim. You know, because at that yeah. point, you don't have to interact with anybody else. Yeah, video games certainly have not helped tabletops cause at all. No, with with those kind of games because it does teach people a different a different mindset as to what what games are for. Yes, definitely. So let's let's talk about that a little bit more. Like we've touched upon like traditional games and like good. I guess in your opinion, as a guy that writes a ton of indie games and does his own thing, what sets apart a good indie game or you know new concept from a bad one um like well, what that's... are the do's and don'ts like if if there's somebody listening to this podcast right now that it's like I've got an awesome RPG idea and they're going through it in their head what would be your do's and don'ts to make it happen my first do's and don'ts would be avoid modals don't say should could would can may avoid any word that that sort of hints at authority but doesn't have authority um Say what you do. Don't don't pussyfoot around it. Um, I I I make fun of Fiasco a lot, but it's it made a lot of great strides for gaming. But the thing I hate the most about Fiasco is that Fiasco has a portion of the rules where it's time to, well, who do we think we as a team should give the die to? I don't want to have a conversation in the middle of play outside of the game talking about what I feel. I want one person in that table to have the authority of deciding who that die goes to. Get it done and move on so that the pl- game isn't... Don't pull me out of the game every single time. So write rules that are concrete, say what you mean, and give authority where authority belongs. And if there isn't a need for authority for something, don't even talk about it. Let the players figure it out as they play. The social contract is just as important as the rules you write for the game. So if four people are playing and they don't get along, your rulebook's not going to save them. Stop with the the pussyfooting around on the in the rulebook and write write what you mean. Right. Cool. And av- and avoid niches. Right. Avoid niches so narrow that you you only have ten customers. Right, so you don't want to design the game that only you and your three friends are going to play. Right, right. I mean, you're we're welcome to do it, right? The environment allows you to do it. I would just why publish it? I don't, I don't see the need. Right. Or at least if you're going to take that and try to make it something a little bit more, I don't want to say mass market appeal, but you know, you get more than ten people to play it. Like, take that whatever those specific parameters are and expand upon it. Right. Cool, cool. And, and this coming from the guy that I've made plenty of niche games, right? So I'm violating my own advice there, but um, I'll make a niche game within an, a, a mechanic that I've already know works. So maybe somebody that plays Protocol is going to enjoy a game about playing illegal immigrants. I don't know. I enjoyed it. I think it's the best one in the series, but it, it's hard to get people to grok that one. Nice. I could definitely, yeah, cool. 
So that definitely, I, I know that uh, that's that's a question that you know I, I've heard numerous times at conventions. I'm sure you've heard it over and over and over again about like, oh hey, by the way, I'm coming up with my own RPG, and this is a cool idea that I have. How good do you think it will work? Oh my god, yeah, and I don't know <laughs> what to tell people. I don't even I don't really give a lot of feedback anymore on on concept. I will tell people, well, you might want to go look at this. This game already does what you're talking about. Right. Um, and I don't have the encyclopedic knowledge of all the games out there like I used to. Just 10 years ago, I probably knew 80% of the RPGs that were in the market, but now it's impossible to do that. It's just... So I can only go off of what I know and say, well, what you're describing is just cult with a different skin. You may want to look at what cult has already done about that or whatever. Um, I think too often people put a new veneer on something and then they think it's a new idea. And the industry has taught us that a veneer is the only element of a game, right? So many games are a game you've already played with a new skin on it. And I I think that that's, that's hurtful to new developers who want to do a, hey, I want to do a steampunk game, but this time it's orcs with wrenches. Well, that's still steampunk, and steampunk is already an empty veneer, so why are you doing an empty derivative of an empty veneer? Because orcs. <laughs> because orcs. Because dwarves. Because of steam. Because of steam dwarf. That's my new, that's my next game. Monocles. It's all about the monocles. Uh, my April Fool's joke was corsets and goggles I was going to do. I did a cover-up for it. Um, Mark Choir did the logo for me, and I did a cover, a mock-up cover. Somebody went to my site and actually thought it was real. <laughs> I was really going to do this game, and I felt so bad letting him down. No, I actually hate steampunk. I'm the last guy in the world you want writing your steampunk role-playing game. Well, you know, hey. <laughs> Oh yeah, so I, I can imagine that you you probably get that a lot, especially at a lot of the the smaller conventions where people listen in. I mean, Nick and I heard a little bit of it this last weekend, and it, you know, it was very D and D centric um, to what they were talking about. But yeah. a lot of it was about like keeping people involved in the story, and you know, for them, the the, the, the crux of the the crux of what they were talking about lends nicely to everything that you've done. Where it's like for you, it is about the story. It is not about and obviously there is character development. It is not about like I'm just gonna roll a handful of dice and then just let the GM tell me what the fuck that means. Like it, it's about you know keeping people involved in the story, keeping it moving forward. Because if you were playing an RPG over a podcast using your traditional methods, it would be probably one of the most boring pieces of shit you've ever listened to in your life. Yeah. So, you know, and I we, we heard that quite a bit, and I know that there was a couple things that Nick and I did hear that we just rolled our eyes at, you know. and it, <laughs> They're pretty common questions, but I think it's something to where people just need to hear it and tell them, it's like, look, stop being spineless. Just, it's your fucking game. You direct it. You tell the players when they're being stupid. You tell the players when they can roll dice. You tell the players what skills that they're going to use for this, you know, and, and things of that nature. Obviously, let them have control of their character, but if all they're going to do is just sit back and, like, kick in doors and slit goblin throats, that may not be what your story's about. And if that's the case, like, I've always been a firm believer, believer boot that player and, you know, get somebody that's going to, you know, jive with the theme of what you got. Right. I, I think a lot of what people want to do – and. Back in the 90s, we were playing 2nd Edition D&D, 
and we were I was adding all kinds of my own house rules to D&D &D and making it our own and turning it into this big story. And we were doing troop play before I knew what troop play was. And we were doing relationship mapping before I knew what relationship mapping was. I didn't I hadn't heard these terms before, but we were doing it. And um we would sit down and we would play and we'd do all these house rules and at no point did I think I really need to publish this. I think we live in an age now where people house rule things and they, and they think to themselves, I really need to publish this for other people for their benefit. And really all you need to do is write up a, a blog entry about something you did at your sessions and maybe somebody will pick it up and maybe they don't. But to create an entire heartbreaker RPG based on the fact that you fixed the XP system in D&D, &D, which is by the way, my least favorite part of D&D. Um, I don't know that you need to make a whole new role-playing game to fix the XP system or to create a new race or to change dwarves into your version of dwarves. That's just a blog post. Yes. Yeah, very much so. You know, it... Uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about XP in, in RPGs either. You know, I, I think a lot of it just comes down to as, I guess, the game master, how quickly you want your characters to advance and what exactly you want that to mean. Right, right. I think uh, Robert Schwab fixed it with um, uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord. At the end of the session, you go up a level. That's it. No, no point in tracking any XP, nothing. He wants you playing ten sessions of his game, and that's it, and that's a campaign. And, and that's what he designed, and it made a lot of sense for him solving a lot of different problems that exist in D&D. Um, but my, my big problems with XP are you get XP for murdering people, and yet it has an alignment system. Those two things don't jive at all. <laughs> I, I don't know why they exist inside the same game. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, there are certain things that I, I've noticed through my years of role-playing. Like, as I've gotten older, I've liked to change. Um, you know, a lot of it for me is a you, you, going. You know, going back, I started when I was in eighth grade, and you know, back then, kicking in the dungeon door and like killing all the orcs in the room and taking all their stuff. You know, it was cool because it was like, oh, you know, this is new and strange and original. And then after a while, it's like, okay, how many more dungeon doors are we gonna kick in? How yeah. many more orcs are we gonna kill? Oh, hey, look, <laughs> a dragon. I guess we'll kill that thing too. How are we getting all of that stuff out of here? Never mind. We got a backpack that holds everything, apparently. And, you know, so it was just after a while, it turned into the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. And then I played other RPGs, and, again, same thing and same thing and same thing. It wasn't honestly, and I, I know that I'm going to get some mumbles and groans from listeners, and I'm sure you two will mumble and groan a little bit too, but it wasn't until I actually started playing stuff by the World of Darkness from White Wolf that, like, that changed for me. Right. And, you right. know, yeah, sure, take it for what it was. Like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, the whole campy top thing. But at the same time, the, what they really pushed in their games more than anything else was story. And experience was not given out just for killing crap. It was given out just for good role-playing. You actually got more for good role-playing than you did just saying, I'm a combat monster. Right, right. I think people that fixated on the gothiness and the emo-ness of Vampire missed the point. I loved the politics of vampire. I loved the being trapped between who you were and what you, what your potential was as a monster. I loved that aspect of vampire. And that didn't have to be anguish or anything. That could just be your animalistic nature that you're playing. I, I think the new edition is actually fantastic for vampire. 
Um, but what draw, drew me to the game was the politics. And somebody once said, yeah, I'd love Vampire if it weren't for the players. And, and <laughs> yeah. so a lot of it became that there was sort of this intellectual arm of people that really liked vampire politics, but they didn't like the veneer, and they didn't like the people that were attracted to just the veneer. And so you had two different camps of people playing that game. Yes, definitely. That was uh, that was definitely something that I noticed even early on. And then a- after they started allowing the other games to kind of get put in and combined, like, you know, you had... you know, It was like they did Vampire, where it's like, okay, you, as you grow older, become more potent. Like, you, yes, you were more powerful than your average human. And then you had werewolves, where it's like, they're, it's like when you combine the two games from a player's aspect, it was like a werewolf was just there to beat up a vampire. Right. And then you right. evolved mages, where it's like, we're just humans, but we can completely fuck with both of you before you even know what's going on. Right. You know, a lot you, of that had to do with different writers taking over different projects and not really seeing the entire gestalt of what the other games were doing. Right. You know, and then, of course, you had stuff like Wraith, where it's like, well, we're kind of involved in the same world, but, you know, sort of not. <laughs> Wraith was such a great idea. It was, the, it was fantastic. It was probably one of my favorites out of them. But, wow, was it so hard to play. I, yeah. I, it was depressing as all get out, and I a lot of people just weren't ready for that. They had been playing the campy versions of the pre- three previous games, which were possible. You couldn't play the campy version of Wraith. No, God, no. Especially when you started uh, having to play as someone else's uh, shadow. Where, you know, because everybody in Wraith played two characters. There, there was your character, and then you also played somebody else's basically evil voice in their head. Right. And so there was a lot of times where it was like, you know, you know, it's just time to, uh, it, it's it's time to just screw with these people. And you know, it, it came down to the fact that like that Wraith was definitely a story-driven game. You had to have story. You couldn't just be like, oh, we're we're all Beetlejuice. You know. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. So and then of course there was Changeling: The Dreaming, where basically it was just I just want to run around and act like a four-year-old. But uh, yeah. That was how I felt about World of Darkness. I, I think what I like the most about Vampire is that as a game master, I didn't have to write a big long chronicle that they would be following, and I could create a sandbox and they could and I could react to what they were doing. I didn't feel that was true with the other games. I didn't feel like I could build a sandbox that they tinkered in. I felt like I had to write a script. Um, and I could be wrong. I could be an anomaly in my perception of that. But that's one of the things that makes a modern indie game, like, say, Apocalypse World, so strong, is that I don't script anything. I can build some bad guys here and there for you to fight, but I'm reacting to what you do. And that puts the characters at the front and center. And to yes. bring it all the way back to Praxis, I don't even need a game master to do that. Now I've got the paper, the sheet right in front of me, putting me at the center of the story, making me... Um, important. So I've I've removed so much of this extraneous, these extraneous rules and paperwork in order to get to making me the center of the story. Yes, which is cool because ultimately it is about the players. Yeah, yeah, it should be. It should be. Awesome. Well, let's see here. We have been ranting on for a little bit over an hour, and unfortunately that means that we do have to start kicking this thing off the air. 
normally I'd keep this stuff going, but, uh, well, you know, it is a weeknight and I wake up early in the morning because apparently I'm sadistic. So, Jim, is there anything else you want to throw in there at the end for Praxis, King of Storms, your current Kickstarter, anything else that you want to throw out there and let people know about, pour it out a little bit, pour out some of your product? That's what we're good for. So... I actually do have a traditional role-playing game coming called City of Masks. I kickstarted at the beginning of the year for a dollar, um, and it is turning into arguably my best game that I've ever made. So I ran it on Sunday. The players were completely blown away with what the actual story, what was actually going on in the background of the story. So I'm hoping that that's not just me as a GM being good at what I do. I hope that that means that I've got a good product and people will enjoy it. But you'll hear more about it in the next few months. Um, nice. Yeah, you definitely got to come back on and talk about that one when it comes out as well. All right, and then I'll really have my tenure. You def yeah, and at that point, um, well, we can't offer health insurance, but... Uh, <laughs> what about dental? I just need dental. Um, we know someone who will punch you in the face a few times. Yeah, I've got, got that. that. <laughs> oh, I mean, you Look know. who you're talking to. That's right. I've seen some people post some shit on your internet, on your Facebook wall. Everybody wants to punch me. Just change your name to Jim Puncho. But uh, hey. Oh. oh, and on that. Badoon. And rim shot. Anyway, Nick, is there anything else you want to throw up before we get the hell out of here? No, I mean now that we've violently threatened our guest, uh, <laughs> I think I'm good right now. Awesome. So, everyone, again, thanks for listening in on Scrubber Supremacy. I'm your host, Tim Korkleski. Nick Bogart was sitting in the background the whole time just laughing like an asshole. And, again, thanks to our thanks to our guest tonight, Jim Puncho, and his uh, King of Storms Kickstarter. Go check it out online. We will definitely have links in the description. See, you know what? I totally talked the last episode, and what did you do? Not air it. Yeah, not yet anyway, but just like any traditional episode, I'm not going to let you talk again, so this is the end. Thanks for listening to another episode of Skirmish Supremacy. To see more of the antics that Nick and I do, you can check us out on Facebook at Skirmish Supremacy. We also have Twitter, which we can be reached at Skirmish Supreme, because apparently Skirmish Supremacy does not fit in Twitter. And if you want to email us directly, you can reach us at Tim at SkirmishSupremacy.com or Nick at SkirmishSupremacy.com. Thanks for listening.